Well, slightly ahead of time for the church calendar, but I'm talking about the crucifixion of Jesus today. We're going to be looking at John chapter 19, if you want to turn to that. We'll come to that in a little while. John chapter 19, 16 to 37, or kind of thereabouts. Uh, We've been doing a series called Simply Jesus, and today it's Simply Jesus Crucified. Um, Do you know, the world has always had its superheroes, hasn't it? Uh, They've existed for as long as stories have been told before writing was even invented across every culture passed on from one generation to another. The Irish have a hero, and he's called Finn McCool. How cool is that? Finn McCool, legend has it, he built the Giant's Causeway in Northern Ireland. The English have a wily bandit called Robin Hood who stole from the rich and gave to the poor. The Americans have all the rest of the heroes. (laughs) Uh, They have many, many comics and films about them. And we just love these stories, don't we, of heroes and their superpowers. And I've got to say, it was no different in Bible times. You know, the Greeks had a range of heroes to match any collection from Marvel or DC Comics. The Romans adopted many of the Greek heroes, renaming them and claiming them as their own demigods, part man, part god, had superpowers that made sense of the world, defeated evil, and explained so much that couldn't be explained all around them. The Jews had their heroes too. Many of them in the Old Testament. David, he slew a giant with a stone. Samson had superhuman strength, my personal favorite story. And Joshua, who spoke to the sun and caused it to stand still because he had a battle to win. I love that story. But no hero could compete with the hero the Jews were all waiting for, the Messiah. He was going to come and give back the Jewish nation its prominent place in the world. A superhero who would bring lasting peace and prosperity and kick the Romans out while he was at it. And to some, Jesus looked like this kind of hero. He fed them in the wilderness. He performed incredible miracles. He spoke like no other man. He even commanded the wind and the waves. He healed those who were born blind, and he raised the dead. And so, on that Palm Sunday, the people cheered him as he arrived in Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, and they hailed him as king. And the religious authorities were so threatened They arranged his trial. The political powers tried to free him because Pilate found nothing wrong with him. And Jesus looks like the hero. He looks like the hero when they come to arrest him. The soldiers fall back under the power of his presence. Peter, who perceives the great battle for the crowning of the Messiah, is just about to begin, cuts off the ear of the temple guard. But then something disappointing happens. Something that should never happen to superheroes. Something truly confusing. It still confuses people today. Jesus is captured and led meekly away. His disciples are scattered, too scared to stay. I mean, what kind of superhero allows himself to get caught, to be bound, to be beaten, and nailed to a cross? 
king is crowned with thorns and crucified, stripped naked, vulnerable. Ultimately, he dies. He doesn't even seem to fight death. He gives up his spirit with the words, it is finished. And then it's all over. All their hopes and dreams, all they thought they knew about him, all their expectations dashed. Jesus was not what the disciples thought he was. They go into hiding completely depressed. Is it any wonder the Romans didn't recognize this hero who died so easily? Can you blame the Jews for not recognizing a Messiah who looked nothing, nothing like the conquering hero they were expecting? Do you think this might be why so many people today fail to see who Jesus is? Because our heroes don't die. They're not weak. They're not meek. To many, Jesus looks a lot more like Clark Kent than Superman. But then that's the whole point. Jesus had a secret identity, which until he rose from the dead, even his disciples failed to see. John, knowing all this, writes his book with the cynic in mind. As we've seen many times before in this series, he arranges the facts to reveal the hidden meaning he wants us to see. We're in chapter 19, and the layers of the story are so deep, we could spend literally weeks on this chapter alone. But as he comes to the close of his book, all the signs he's shown us before now are coming to their conclusion. And several weeks ago, we saw how Jesus was saying, my time has not come. But in this chapter, his time is fully come. And he expresses it so poignantly in this great cry from the cross, it is finished. So I want to read this passage here. We're just going to meander through it. And I want to pick some things out and pause as we go along. I want to draw out some of these hidden parts of Jesus' identity. He is the ultimate superhero. I defy you not to see it today. So here we go. And the first sign is the sign that is nailed to the cross. John 19 verse 16 says this. Finally, Pilate handed them over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There, that doesn't sound like Batman, doesn't it? Isn't that Gotham? Oh, yeah, Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared, some would say a sign and fastened it to the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. I love this. I love the fact Pilate could do nothing to save Jesus' life, but in giving him this title, he honors his death. And what the Jews could not or refused to see, Pilate, exercising his legal and political power, records the official version of his judgment this is who Jesus is. Jesus, the king, the king of the Jews. But more than that, verse 20, many of the Jews read this sign. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in 
three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, three languages, the languages of the whole world passing by. The Jews spoke Aramaic. The Romans and most of the known world at the time spoke either Latin or Greek. And the Jews may not have seen it, but the official notice that Pilate nails to the cross makes it clear. Jesus is the king of the Jews, but he's no provincial monarch. He's dying for the whole world to see, read it, and weep. Verse 21, the chief priests of the Jews protest to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. The record stands. And so John gives us a further sign of Jesus' identity. What Pilate has written, the world needs to know that Jesus is the king whose death is assigned to every tongue, tribe, and nation. And you know, one day, every eye will see him, and every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that he's Lord. You know, it's not part of the reading today, but just to say that if Jesus was truly the king, he would have been given a royal burial. He has a criminal's death, but surely a royal burial, and that's what happens. At the end of the chapter, he's given no criminal's grave, but at great expense, a wealthy man called Joseph of Arimathea provides a tomb, no doubt amongst the other wealthy family tombs, in a garden on the fringes of the city. Beautiful view. And at great expense, a religious leader called Nicodemus bought a tremendous amount of burial spice to Jesus' grave. Such cost, completely on point with a royal burial. So John is shouting at us, all right, with this sign. He's pointing at the sign and saying, Jesus, the king, has died. Secondly, we see Jesus the priest revealed. So verse nine, uh, chapter 19, verses 23, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. And this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Guys, you need to know this. Jesus was crucified in nakedness. Something that for the sake of modesty isn't seen in the films that are made about this event. In his nakedness, he took on our shame and bore it for us so that we never need to be ashamed. His priestly undergarment was removed for the crucifixion. A white linen robe that was worn by the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement when he entered the Holy of Holies to plead the forgiveness of sin on behalf of the people. And John's is the only account that mentions this seamless road. And it's a clear indicator to his readers that what we are seeing in this sign is Jesus, the high priest of a new covenant. Later, this is spelt out for us in the book of Hebrews, if you want to read about it. 
But Jesus is the high priest who stands between God and the human race and he makes continual intercession for us. In other words, he pleads our cause in the courts of heaven so that nothing can ever come between God and us again. We never need to come before God in shame, but we can boldly approach the throne of grace. Isn't that wonderful? Verse 24, let's not tear it, they said to each other. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This high priest's robe, you see, is not torn. If you know the story, you'll know that Jerusalem's priest, he tore his clothes as Jesus dies in despair because he realizes the wrong that he's done. And the soldiers are unaware of the significance of their conversation and they're gambling over a valuable piece of cloth. But John immediately points us to a deeper meaning. He says, this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. That said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Which is a quote, of course, from Psalm 22, which Jesus will later cry out from the cross, according to Mark's gospel, those haunting words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cry of the suffering servant that Isaiah foresees, the cry of the Messiah. John's saying, can you see it? Can you see who this is? He's the king, he's the high priest, he's the suffering servant, he's the Messiah. Ta-da! And then there's this remarkable moment of compassion that Jesus shows us to his mother right in the middle of it all. Verse 25, near the cross of Jesus stood Mary, his mom, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, by the way, that's John, he wasn't shy of the fact, the disciple that Jesus loved more than any of the others, standing nearby, he said, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother, and from that time on, this disciple, the writer John, took her into his home. Isn't that beautiful? But why? Why does John include this scene in the middle of Jesus' crucifixion? For me, you know, this is Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest unable to feel sympathy or compassion with our weakness. You see, Jesus chose to show familial love and care in the extremity of his suffering, because he's that kind of priest. You know, he's one who communicates with us. He relates to us in our suffering and our weaknesses. He's the kind of priest you don't mind confessing your sin to. Do you know him like that? He's not distant from our suffering or pain. He endured it, and in that moment of his agony, he showed compassion to his mum. Good one, Jesus. We should have that on Mother's Day, don't you think? That'd be a good one, wouldn't it? Then we see this other part of Jesus' identity, the lamb. Jesus the lamb. 
And John 19, again, verse 28. Let me just read this to you. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he'd received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. And because of this, the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, but they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. They'd die more quickly that way. So the soldiers came and broke the legs. Sorry, uh, it's a good job it's after dinner. Broke the legs of the first man who'd been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. God, there's so much to say about this section and so much Jewish history that, put, that it points to, but I'm going to hold myself back. Um, but I'm speaking about the Passover. The Jews are in the very act of remembering this as Jesus is crucified. And this special Sabbath the Jewish leaders are talking about is Sabbath, is the Passover Sabbath. And if you remember, Jesus' last meal with his disciples was the Passover meal. That would have been Thursday. Now John's telling us Jesus is crucified and he dies on the day of preparation, which is Friday. And Friday is the day that the lamb was prepared for the sacrifice and then killed all of which is designed to lead the Jewish reader to think of the Old Testament sign of the Passover. Jesus, he says, is the perfect sacrificial lamb. Remember how he was introduced to us by John the Baptist. Look the lamb who will take away the sins of the world. And John is showing us that Jesus is the perfect sacrificial lamb that is offered without broken legs because it had to be a perfect lamb once for sin. And the hyssop reminds us of how the blood of the lamb was painted on the lintels of the Israelites' door using hyssop branches. And these hyssop branches are lifted up to Jesus on the cross. And of course, his blood is now applied to us and our salvation so that the angel of death passes over us in the promise of eternal life. This just means your sins are forgiven. That's what it means. You're no longer condemned. Your sins are forgiven. The price has been paid. It's finished. Sin is finished. It can no longer be the death sentence that it was. That's what it means. That's what that is about. So finally, finally, Jesus was crucified so that his spirit could be poured out. Jesus' spirit poured out. John 19. I'm going to read verse 30 again. And then a couple of other verses, 32 to 37. Verse 30, when he'd received the drink, Jesus said, it's finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And as we've seen, they didn't need to break his legs because he was already dead. So verse 34, instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth. This is so important. 
That's what that's about. And so he testifies that you may also believe. These things happen so the spirit, scripture would be fulfilled that not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on him they have pierced. Do you know, I love that bit in verse 30 uh, where it shows us that Jesus didn't even fight death. Uh, that's just incredible, isn't it? I, anyway, I won't go into that. But he didn't fight death, but he gave up or he gave over his spirit. That, that's what that means. He literally gave it over. Some have said that this is the moment they believe that when, when Jesus' spirit was released into the world to be poured out at Pentecost, when he gave over his spirit like that. This is seen further when the soldier pierces Jesus' side and there's this sudden flow of blood and water. You see, Jesus, unlike any other superheroes, gives away his superpowers to anyone that asks. That's amazing, isn't it? And a lot of John's gospel is actually about this promise. And you can do a study through the book of John about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And often the picture he uses is of water being poured out. And he says that the only thing that's needed to receive the Spirit is to be thirsty. And so whoever is thirsty, Jesus said in John 7, come to me and drink, and out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. But it wasn't then. His time was not then, but now it is. It's been poured out. The death of Jesus is where the waters begin to flow, and they flow out in his blood. You see, it's blood and water flowed out in his blood. His, blood. his spirit is given at the cross because of the price that he paid for us. So it's already been paid for so that anyone can ask. Anyone can ask and anyone can be filled with his supernatural power. That's amazing. It costs so much, though, because it cost his life. It cost all of that. So guys, let me ask you, when did you last take a drink? Because it's incredibly valuable. You know, when did you last thirst for the Spirit and receive his supernatural infusion of power? It's so valuable. How are you doing with using your superpowers? That's what he's promised. Jesus promises that we will do the things that he did and more by the power of the Spirit. And so at the end of Mark's gospel, he tells us that these signs will follow those who believe. You ready? You ready for the list? In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. When they place their hands on sick people, they will get well. Now, I don't understand what all of those things mean, but that sounds an awful lot like superpowers to me. Jesus gave his life so that we could continue his work. He is the superhero that gives out his superpowers to all who believe. Anybody excited about that? Okay, we've come to the end. Let me conclude. John reveals Jesus' hidden identity. Jesus is the king of the whole world. He's the high priest who forever makes intercession. He's the perfect sacrificial lamb, and he's the superhero that pours out his superpowers 
in his spirit. That's Rob Davies' version of the Bible. And there's a saying, isn't there, that goes, never meet your heroes. The implication being that they will almost certainly disappointment, but with Jesus, it's the complete opposite. It's only when we view him from a distance that we fail to see him for who he is. Matthew records how Jesus was tormented on the cross by those who passed by saying things like he saved others, but he can't save himself. Come down from the cross and we will believe in him. I remember thinking, quite honestly, I really wish he would. (laughs) Anybody else ever thought that? I thought, do you know, it'd be really cool if Jesus flew down right now like Superman, beat up all the baddies just to show them all, you know? Come on, Jesus, be my kind of superhero and dazzle us with your power. But you see, Jesus did a a deeper work that even the devil didn't understand because presumably if he had, he'd have never allowed the crucifixion of Jesus. He was totally fooled by the Lord. It's done so much damage to his kingdom because there are so many that have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the dear son. Of course, one day Jesus will return in a very different form. (laughs) I'll finish with this. He's coming back not as a baby meek and mild, not as a lamb to be slaughtered, but as a victorious conquering king. Turn to Revelation. This is where we go. Revelation 1.7 says, Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Revelation 22. He says it over and over again at the end of the book of Revelation. I'm coming soon. Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. Now, that's my kind of superhero. We see him risen, ascended, glorified, and returning as a victorious, conquering hero. Amen.